This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another edition of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager. Joining me, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And Sam and I this week are continuing in our series, Desiring the Kingdom, which is a companion series of podcasts to the messages that are being preached right now at Rio Vista Community Church, covering First and Second Kings up through the lives of Elijah and Elisha. But this week, we are going to be in First Kings chapter 2, which, Sam, in my opinion, this is either like a scene from the Godfather movie or the Game of Thrones or something like that. <laughs> yeah, well, you we were joking around before we started recording about having the Godfather theme music at the opening of this. <laughs> yes, I was <laughs> thinking. Totally appropriate. Yeah. Totally appropriate for this chapter. I can just, I can imagine it. I can imagine, Solomon, my son, come, come closer, Solomon, my son. <laughs> Let me let me give you a list of my enemies because that's really what this chapter feels like. Um, it really does. Adonijah is going to wake up with one of the horse heads that he came into power right on the bed beside him. It does, you know, <laughs> um, you know, and it, it, it this chapter opens up literally with David on his deathbed. I mean, this is it. It's like the you know David knows that his time is is very short, and so he decides that what he needs to do at this point is to communicate his final message to his son Solomon and it starts off so well it's like there's this this wonderful you know walk uprightly do all these great things for the lord and then also on your way when you when you're coming back from doing all that Solomon murder all my enemies <laughs> <laughs> pretty much so that's uh that's that's tough you know we you and I've talked a few times about this but there's a lot of sections in the old testament where there are things in there that seem incredibly brutal and incredibly harsh and they just really you know bang off of our modern day sensibilities we really struggle with them and um i think some of that is that it's an ancient culture it's an ancient people i mean if you read anything historically from that time frankly these people were the nice guys Mm -hmm. absolutely i mean you you go to some of these cultures and you read what was going on in the ancient world around this time and it's incredible uh some of the some of the Barbaric, I'll put it that way, codes of justice that existed at this time period were Well, child intense. sacrifice. You talked yeah. about the, the offerings to Molech with the molten arms yeah. of the statues. and It's just awful. So, I mean, you go, you go right to the east of where Israel is, and you've got tribes like the Moabites and the Ammonites, and child sacrifice is a practice in worship. You know, they lifted up these gods of fertility. Well, how do you show that you trust a god of fertility? Well, you give them the children that you have as an expression that you trust him to bring you more. Um, And so they would sacrifice children. It was cult prostitution that was prevalent. That goes all the way back into the days of Jacob and Judah. If you remember when Tamar is looking to trap Judah into impregnating her, she pretends, dresses up like a prostitute. He can't pass her by. But that's cult prostitution was prevalent in just about every one of these ancient religions. Um, So the religion that we have today, now that Christianity and Judaism and the monotheistic religions of of temperance have kind of taken the world, we would not recognize religion back then. (laughs) You know, if you got in a time machine and you went back in time three, four thousand years, uh, their worship ceremonies would be shocking to anyone today. It would be. Um, it would really be the and, – and life in general was – you know, human life wasn't valued back then the way that – you know, today we're like, oh, every person has a right to exist. And back then they were like, every person has a right to be under my boot and at the end of my sword. <laughs> it's but, just a very brutal culture. Yeah, and we think it's because we've gotten smarter as as people, and that's just not true. I mean, in the places where you've seen Christianized or Westernized values, you see a change in ethics. And so, I mean, the places where you see that kind of an ethic are places where it's been exposed to Judeo-Christian values. But you go, and this is 
maybe generalizing a bit too much, but you go to some of the more extreme cultures um, that have not been Christianized and you find that uh, there are very few rights to women. Their their legal codes are very intense, very extreme, um, and that's that's exactly what you find. I mean, in India, I know when the when British colonized, and that's now a, a bad thing to do is to colonize anyone. But when the British colonized India, I mean, there were villages where, when the man died, his whole family, including women and children, would be burned with him on top of the funeral pyre because the idea was, well, if the man is gone, what value were they? And and so when Christian ethics spread, this idea that humility is a virtue, you go into the ancient world and humility is not a virtue. It's seen as a vice. It's seen as weakness. Um, you know, radical pride was no good, but you wanted to show everyone how strong you were. That was considered virtue um, and strength, like real strength. And Christianity changed that. It, it gave us an ethic that said, no, we, we need to look out for the for the well being of our neighbors. Above ourself, um, that was unheard of prior to this. Yeah. Well, so let us begin in First uh, Kings chapter two, and the first four verses are really uh, the good part. <laughs> this is where David gives Solomon his final word. He says, "When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, "I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong, and show yourself a man." And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel." That, on the surface of it, when you read that, it sounds like, hey, David wants Solomon to be a godly king, to just do what's right before the Lord. Yeah, and then in Deuteronomy, it had laid out, like, if you're going to be a king, here's how to be a godly king. I mean, all of that is spelled out in the law. And David is pointing Solomon, saying, hey, don't trust on the world's wisdom. I want you to go and you look at what the Lord has for you. I noticed at the end of that, or at least it occurred to me, that it did seem as though what David was really concerned about was that his legacy would continue on the throne of Israel. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, legacy, as you've said many times, legacy was a big deal in that culture. But it is something that... You know, there does seem to be a little bit of David was really concerned about David here at the end of it. Yeah, and I think if you go back, probably the the closest correlation to this is if you go a thousand years before uh, King David comes along, you have Abraham. And a promise is given to Abraham that God is going to work through one specific family, Abraham's family, to bring about the salvation of the world. And so then Abraham has two kids, and it's like, which one is it going to be? Well, it's Isaac, and then it's Jacob, and then it's Judah. And when you get to the end of Genesis, there's a promise given, right? And so the line of salvation of the Savior has followed those you know, different generations to Judah. And at the end of Genesis, when Jacob is giving the promises, he says that the kingdom, the scepter, is going to belong to the line of Judah. And mm-hmm. then so from that point forward – all the descendants of Judah, it's like, well, which family is it going to fall to? Which family is it going to fall to? Well, we learn in First Samuel that it falls uh, to David, or in the books of Samuel, that it falls to King David. And now the question becomes, okay, who's going to be the kingly line? Is it going to be Adonijah or earlier? Was it going to be Absalom? And so the idea is now it's like a new, more specific family line of the descendants of Abraham, of the descendants of Isaac and Jacob. Now it's in the line of David, and it's the kingly line. We've got it narrowed down even more where the Savior of Israel is going to come from. And so what David is saying is just like Abraham, who passes down the promise given to him to Isaac, and Isaac passes down the promise given to Jacob and so forth, now David from the kingly line is saying, okay, Solomon – it's coming through you. Now, here's what you do about it. Yeah. David was the second king. Saul was the first one. David was the second one in the line of kings in Israel. And so they hadn't had a lot of experience with their kings to this point. You know, they had just gotten started with it. But you mentioned Samuel. 
And I went back and read what Samuel told Israel about how things would be once they had a king, because that was the thing that they said to him is that, hey, we want to have a king over us so that we can be just like all the other nations. And we talked about this some last week, that that was um, that that desire for a king was something that in a way was kind of sad because it was we want a king. Everybody else has a king. And Samuel said to them, do you know what it's going to be when you have a king? He writes, he says, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of 50 and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And Israel said, sign us up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Samuel... Samuel was the libertarian candidate of 1030 BC. Like he, <laughs> you do not want centralized power, and and you know because that's something that Samuel understood that you know this modern age we've lost track of. You can't trust any fallen person with power. You can't. They will abuse it, and so no matter how wonderful a person you put on the throne, like David, is by many magnitudes greater than I am. His devotional life for the Lord far greater than my own, I'm sure. And he stumbles and he becomes at the end of his life a king that produces all this turmoil in his kingdom and Solomon's going to do the same. And what you find is every time anybody has consolidated power, they will abuse it. And Samuel warned them of this before they insisted on a king. No matter who it is, they will abuse it. There's only one king that will ever show up that's willing to serve at a sacrificial cost for the good of his people permanently. And thankfully, he will one day be the only king and forever. (laughs) He is that now, but at some point, we will have that earthly kingdom. Um, uh, If it could happen tomorrow, I would (sighs) sign up. That would be great. That would be great. I'm in. Yeah. So, um, but... We're talking about David today, and so David, you know, after after he gets Solomon to lean in and he gives him all of the the pep talk, then he says, moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. Now, Joab was the commander of the armies for David at that Mm -hmm. point, Um, and it was a bit of succession by assassination because he became the leader of the armed forces without competition when he killed this guy Amasa. Um, and so I went back and read the stories of, of how all of that happened. And Abner was involved in a conflict between Saul and David. Uh, Abner was Saul's commander of the armies. And Joab's brother was pursuing Abner as part of the conflict. This was at the tail end of the conflict when Saul's guys were, were running away. And Joab's brother was chasing Abner. Abner said, look, stop chasing me. The brother said, nope, not going to do it. So there was a fight, and Joab's brother got killed. But that was in a time of war. They were Mm -hmm. still at war with each other. It wasn't over yet. And Joab avenged that killing in cold blood. He came back, and he killed Abner in cold blood. Yeah. Joab is like a Machiavellian figure. He just does whatever's best for Joab. He's always playing chess pieces and doesn't care about the moral aspects of anything he's yeah. an, an amoral person and he backed you know adonijah in chapter one when adonijah mm-hmm. was planning his little coup joab was thinking this is the way the wind is blowing i'm gonna go this way <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Um, but the problem was he went in the direction the wind was blowing without considering which direction the Lord was pointing. And that's mm-hmm. going to get him jammed up here. The Amasa story is even a little harsher. It's like Amasa was the, the leader of the army. Joab was like important in that, but he wanted to eliminate Amasa. And so it says that he took him by the beard and Amasa leaned in thinking that Joab was going to give him like a, like a brotherly kiss or something. They greeted each other with a kiss. And instead he got greeted with a sword in in the breastplate and just pulls the beard and jams the sword right in his chest so the story of of what he does with amasa is told if you want to read it folks in second samuel chapter 20 beginning in verse 8 (laughs) he says when they were at the great stone that is in gibeon amasa came to meet them now joab was wearing a soldier's garment and over it was a belt with a sword on its sheath fastened on his thigh and as he went forward it fell out and joab said to amasa is it well with you my brother And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him, but Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Um, Reminds me of Ehud, the left-handed assassin from the book of Judges. Um, So then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. This was some conflict that I guess Amasa was involved in also. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and says, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. I may cut this out. (laughs) And anyway... (laughs) And anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken off the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. I mean, that's just cold-blooded assassination. There's just no ways about it. Amasa had done nothing to Joab to deserve that. Um, So you're right. Joab was uh, a very Machiavellian character. Yeah, one of the other things that is involved in here, two of the other things that Joab was involved in is he was supposed to take Absalom when Absalom, David's son, rebelled and took the throne with an insurrection and drove David out of the city. Joab was supposed to go after Absalom, and David had given specific instructions, like, I don't want him killed, and Joab disobeys that and kills Absalom. Um, David's son, which devastates David, um, but he did it in kind of secrecy. And another one is Joab is the person when David had his great fall with Bathsheba and he sends Uriah back to the battlefield. Joab is the one uh, that was supposed to essentially ensure that Uriah was killed on the battlefield unjustly. And so David is looking back on a legacy of his kingdom, and he's kind of tolerated this wickedness. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think if you could say anything righteous about what David is doing here, he's saying, I don't want your uh, reign, your regime to be colored by this wicked man that I tolerated and should not have. Yeah. You know, uh, Jesus in the New Testament obviously had things to say about the the idea of revenge. That's not something that we should be engaged in. In Matthew, uh, he says, you've heard it was said, uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also, the famous turn the other cheek passage. Mm-hmm. And then Peter uh, came up to him asking Jesus a question and saying, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, you know, thinking, that's incredibly generous, Lord. I'm letting him <laughs> sin against me seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, which had to have been a crushing thing for Peter, who was lining somebody up for a quick uh, boot, you know. Um, so obviously, revenge is not something that we should be a part of, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, these kinds of these stories of revenge from the Old Testament, Jesus says, no, no, revenge is not what we're about here. Um, in Thessalonians, Paul writes uh, to the Thessalonians, he says, I, to, I want you to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Mm-hmm. There's, not a, there's no point here in which um, you know, we're to be concerned about our own power and advancement, and um, succession by assassination should not be how you find the next pastor of your church. <laughs> 
<laughs> that is correct. Is what we're saying. Yeah. And so there, this one is actually kind of complicated because, you know, the one place – the people in Scripture that are allowed to carry out justice is the king. And so like, you know, Peter, when he talks about it, or is it, it's Paul, you know, that the, the king does not bear the sword in vain. Right. You know, that – that yeah, the king is allowed to impose justice. So you know, when you're picking your next pastor, <laughs> you know, yeah, put put the sword away, or you know, when you're settling your own debts, like you're not allowed to vengeance. But God does institute governments to bring justice, and so you know, the question then becomes: Is David doing this out of a sense of vengeance, where it would be wrong for the king to act like that, or is he doing it out of a sense of justice? Personally, I sort of like your uh, what you said earlier, which is that David did not want Solomon to start his reign with somebody like Joab there, mm-hmm. you know, doing the same kinds of things to him that he had done to David. Because I do think that David, you know, Joab may have been useful to David um, at times when he would carry out his orders, but I think that uh, one of the things that's that's uh, stressed here is that David was unaware of Joab's actions there's a mm-hmm. you know that's brought up a couple times in the narratives that Joab did these things and David didn't know it um, so Joab was a guy that acted without the king's permission and mm-hmm. without and and hiding what he had done from the king yeah. and I think that David didn't want Solomon to have somebody like Joab involved yeah. in his and leadership it, and I think to David's fault he didn't want to know it he probably suspected, but kind of did the thing where you put your fingers in your ears and go, la, 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 yeah. la, la, like I don't know anything. Yeah. Um, some of the other commentaries talk about how, you know, of the people who knew that of David's affair with Bathsheba and having Uriah killed, that it would have been David knew about it, Bathsheba knew about it, Joab and Nathan knew about it. And the only one that was a risk of using that scandal to bring down his son was Joab. And so some commentators fear or felt like David did this out of fear that Joab would use this as some kind of political capital to put a stain on his son being the son of Bathsheba before it got started. I don't think that's right, but I think it's an interesting theory worth considering. Joab is one of the few people that has this secret and the only untrustworthy one. Well, and he has shown a willingness to use the information to his benefit already before, because the way that it, the way in which he had Uriah uh, killed was that he commanded that there be this ill-advised charge up to the wall, basically a defended wall where it wasn't going to end well, and then everybody pull back, but don't tell Uriah we're going to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did that, and Uriah was killed, but a lot of other guys were killed also because it was a well-defended position that they charged up to, and when Joab sent that report to David, he said, to, he told the messenger, he said, you know, and if the king should become upset at you that all these other people died, Tell the king, and Uriah fell also. Mm-hmm. So he was willing to say to David, "Hey, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say no more. Uh, you know, I'm taking care of your dirty work over here, King David." Yeah, so. and I think David, you know, <laughs> who who has the the acute feel of what his sin brought upon his home, you know, the curse of the sword uh, that comes from Nathan in, in Second Samuel twelve. Uh, I think he's feeling that, and he knows that Joab is a part of that cancer. Yeah, yeah, that's that. That's I think is definitely the case. Uh, so after Joab, then David uh, tells Solomon to deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite. Gileadite, Gileadite. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go with Gileadite. Barzillai the Gileadite. I'm, I'm gonna. I am just <laughs> failing Old Testament names. Left I was and like right. all excited that you got Barzillai. Like that's the harder of the two. Barzillai the Gileadite. There we go. <laughs> um, and and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom your brother. And there is also with you Shemai the son of Gera the Benjaminite from Baharim who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. And when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore by swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword now. Therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. I was like, he's tipping his hand there a little bit. You're a wise man. You're going to know, and you're going to kill him. Um, hint, hint. Yeah, you know, hint, hint. But it is, you know, one of the things that I 
I thought about this is that these people were all involved in uh, great conflicts in David's life. I mean, obviously, uh, when Absalom, his son, uh, and I think we, I think we kind of talked through this story a little bit. Was it last week? Uh, where you know David's house not being in order, you know, very much. Uh, obviously, Amnon uh, raping his sister Tamar, who was his half sister, who was the full sister of Absalom. Absalom then killing Amnon and holding it against David because David didn't do anything about it. You know, if you had run this family properly, dad, we wouldn't have this problem. Absalom rose up and actually deposed his father Mm -hmm. for a time, got further than Adonijah did. He kicked David out of the palace. Um, And then, you know, David came back and, and, and turned the tables and, and won the, the position back. But as part of all of that that was going on, that was a very traumatic time, obviously, in David's kingdom and his life. I mean, his son basically kicked him off the throne. So the battle with Saul, the battle with Absalom, and all of these things, this period of time, are, these people are all tied into that. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, do you think about the, the transition with Saul as those first two generals, Abner and Amasa, you know, that's the first scandal or the first big crisis moment with David and Joab killed both of them and now Joab's the guilty one but the second one when he had to run away when Absalom deposed him and drove him out of the city you know these two guys that are lifted up here Barzillai uh, and um, then Shammai these two people give David two radically different um treatments. So David is fleeing, he's, you know, in fear for his life. He's he's wondering what's going to come of all this. And Barzillai shows him great kindness, brings him in, feeds him, gives him shelter, uh, shows incredible loyalty to David when it didn't look like David was going to emerge as the victor here. And the other guy, uh, Shimei, who's from the tribe of Benjamin, so he would have been, you know, loyal to Saul, right. you know, he would have been on Saul's team is throwing rocks at David and cursing him and throwing dust at him, which means I hope you die. Um, And so you have radically different treatments when David is in the crucible of his experience with his son Absalom overthrowing him. And he looks to the one who showed him compassion and kindness and spoke well of him and fed him. And he says to Solomon, I want him to be among those who eat at your table. And in the ancient world, that was a way of saying, I want him on a government pension. I want you to take care of his family because he's old. I think he's 80 when that happened. Uh, And so now his family, I want them to be taken care of because they showed kindness to me when it wasn't advantageous for them. But this other guy who cursed me and threw rocks at me and dirt at me and everything else, and I swore I wouldn't kill him with the sword back then – well, now it's up to you, and I would encourage you. <laughs> <laughs> if I can make a recommendation, son, <laughs> he he wants this guy to not not fare so well. Again, to me, it's it's intriguing because David had a long life, and he had many things that happened over his reign, and yet it seems as though he he certainly didn't get past this point mm-hmm. in his life. You know these these moments where he had to fight for the throne were were moments of great stress for him, were moments of, of, of where he feared for his own life in many instances. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's obviously that, you know, here at his death, those are the things that he revisits. Those are the moments that he goes back to. Um, I, I find that interesting, you know, as I was thinking about what it was that concerned David. You know, I think about that in terms of, of my own life, you know, it's like, well, hey, I don't know how many more years I have, but being somebody who is now in his sixth decade, I have a tendency to kind of look back at my life and and to see things not as how they started, but how they wound up. And it seems to me like huh. David is still hung up in how they started. It's like, you know what? When we were getting this whole thing going, these guys either did me right or did me wrong. Um, whereas in in my situation, as I'm kind of as I reflect back over my own life, I don't even think so much about, you know, well, this didn't start out very well. I'm more interested in how did this all wind up, mm-hmm. and so I just think it's interesting that David didn't move past those things. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking through David's life and just kind of a ten thousand foot flyover, you know. He is given tremendous favor by God with all of his foreign enemies. You know, like he, it's just victory after victory after victory, and it doesn't seem like they are a great big threat to him. He right. just defeats them. 
But the biggest traumas that David has is not with the foreign enemies. It's domestic. It's the ones closest to him. So it's going to be, you know, he goes and serves King Saul and plays music for him and is in the court. And then Saul gets jealous and turns against him. And so when David is writing these Psalms of Lament, they're usually, it seems like, from one of two seasons. It's either when He's been betrayed by Saul, and he's running around in caves and wilderness trying to flee for his life. Or it's when his own son betrayed him. And so it's like David's deepest grief, um, the hardest seasons of his life aren't, aren't foreigners, you know, where you'd understand, you know, enemy foreign militaries. It's those closest to him that have turned on him. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just see, like, I, you can imagine coming to the end of your life. And not having resolution there. Mm-hmm. And then the whole Adonijah deal where, you know, basically everything that happened with Absalom, a son that tries to seize the throne, is now repeating itself again. And you got to imagine he's, you know, got some PTSD that's now super sensitive. Um, and he wants this dealt with. Yeah. He doesn't want Solomon to suffer what he has had to suffer. Yeah. Well, and that's where we and that's where we pick up next because it tells us in verse ten. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was forty years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and thirty-three years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. And then it goes on. We get the Adonijah part two. Um, it says then Adonijah the son of Haggith came to Bathsheba the mother of Solomon and she said do you come peacefully and he said "Eh, peacefully then he said I have something to say to you she said speak Uh, people talk that way back then (laughs) we should do a podcast like this I have something to say speak Mark speak therefore (laughs) hold not thy tongue Uh, he said you know that the kingdom was mine and that all Israel fully expected me to reign however the kingdom has turned about and become my brothers for it was his from the lord you know i'm reading a little petulance there into adonijah but it's interesting that adonijah opens up by reminding bathsheba i should have been king Mm -hmm. um even though he knew the kingdom had been given to solomon by the lord if there's nothing else that was going to show you that Adonijah did not worship God, did not follow the Lord, it's right here because he said, mm-hmm. I know God gave it to Solomon, but it should have been mine. Mm-hmm. So we're going to try one more time. He says, and now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. She said to him again, speak. And he said, please ask King Solomon. He will not refuse you to give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak for you to the king. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah, and the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Then he sat on his throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right, a sign of respect. Then she said, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. And then she, I really honestly believe, Sam, she knew what was going to happen when she said this. She said, let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as his wife. King Solomon answered his mother, and why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my older brother, and on his side are Abiathar the priest and Joab the son of Zariah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God do so to me, and more also, if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. Now, therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David my father, and who has made me a house as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. First of all, one of the things that, that I, I, and again, I don't know whether we've talked about this before or not, I tend to lose track of what things we talk about <laughs> when mics are rolling and not rolling, but Adonijah here clearly knew what he was doing when he asked for Abishag to be given to him as wife, mm-hmm. because Abishag was probably a concubine, you know, mm-hmm. a wife of David. They probably had yeah. done that officially. If you remember last week when David is old and he's dying and he can't get warm, it's Abishag who is brought forth to be kind of a nurse figure, but also in that role would have been a concubine to lay in bed with him to keep him warm. And so at a minimum, because she is with him in his final days in bed, you know, in kind of an intimate setting, it would have been seen that she was a concubine. Absolutely. And there was a custom back in those times where if you vanquished a king, 
Mm-hmm. One of the ways you showed how totally you dominated him was you rather publicly took his wives or concubines. Absalom did that, right, with David when, he drove, when he drove David out. So if, if you remember, kind of the, the tone that's been already struck is all of this is intended to remind you of what happened with Absalom. Yes. You know, Absalom was this really handsome young man who was the son of David who felt that he could do better, and so he he – cobbles together a coalition of people that are willing to work with him to overthrow David the king. Um, And then what happens when David is driven out of the city, out of Jerusalem, Absalom does something, prepare your youngsters. He takes David's concubines onto the roof of the palace, which is an interesting thing because that's where David's fall began, right? He's on the roof of the palace when he sees Bathsheba. And he takes all the concubines onto the roof of David's palace and in front of full view of anybody that could see up there, he has his way with all of David's concubines. And the message was, what was yours is now mine. Mm-hmm. So these royal concubines now serve the reigning king is the idea. Yeah. And so when Adonijah says, I, want, I, I would like to have David's, you know, the last rightful king, I would like to have his concubine, wink, wink. What that's going to do when people see it, they're going to be like, now, wait a minute. Um, Doesn't that mean that he is now in authority? And so he knows very well what he's asking. He's trying to play um, the naivety of a young King Solomon, this this younger boy. Um, I don't know how old King Solomon is, but you you intend to believe that he's younger still. And so he's thinking, I'll be able to pull one over on him, and I'll slowly begin to build my coalition to once again challenge for the throne. Mm. Yeah, we don't know how how old Solomon is at this point, but we can figure out, for example, that he had a very young child. Um, Rehoboam would have been probably about a year old because Solomon, when, when Rehoboam took over as king, Solomon reigned for 40 years, if I'm right. Wasn't that mm-hmm. right? 40 years. Yeah, like David did. Um, Rehoboam was 41 when he took over as king. So he would have been born a year before Solomon became king. Oh, so, so Solomon had a, a wife and a young child at home. So he was young himself, you know, and uh, you, know, you can kind of imagine him looking at Rehoboam thinking, hey, don't be anything like my brothers and I. <laughs> uh, and he was worse in some respects, but mm-hmm. we'll get to that. But the, you know... It is something here that um, Adonijah, I think, when going to Bathsheba, because I think Adonijah knew if I go straight to Solomon and say, yo, brother, um, doing anything with Abishag? You know, yeah. can I have her? That kind of thing. It would have been an immediate problem. So he sent Bathsheba in. But I, I again, I'm reading between the lines a little bit. But I think Bathsheba has shown herself already to be kind of wise to the ways of political power and intrigue in the court. She had to know what Adonijah was up to. And I think that that's why she said to Solomon, I have just one small request for you. Mm -hmm. Just a little thing. Just a little thing. Not a big deal at all. Knowing that it was going to bring the wrath of Solomon down on Adonijah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and commentaries go and and – way different directions. It's either they think that she's incredibly shrewd and she's kind of steering this as she comes before Solomon and there's others who – uh, claim that she's just naive and she's hoping to forge peace between the brothers by giving Adonijah this concubine, which would have been utter, utterly foolish. Yeah. Oh, and, and I mean, admittedly, I'm hanging a lot on the fact that she said, I have one small request for you. Right, I think right. that I think the use of the word <laughs> small there is an indication that in any event, she knew it wasn't a small request. Yeah. So when she said that, I thought it was like she was probably winking at him. Like, she got her master's in sarcasm. Yes. Exactly. I don't know. I don't know how you flag uh, sarcasm in Hebrew, but she was doing it. You know. So then, King Solomon sent uh, Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down, and he died. And then he deals with another problem. He turns to Abiathar. Now, Abiathar is a descendant. A, is a grandson or great grandson of Eli? I think it's great grandson, but I'm not sure. Okay, so he's a descendant of Eli, and as we talked about again last week, Eli, because we talked about Abiathar last week, um, Eli not a good, uh, not a good legacy. Um, Eli's sons were terrible priests, and the Lord told Eli, you know what? Hey, your your line's going to be cut off from being priests. We're going to be done with you. And this is when that prophecy, you know, comes to fruition here. Um, and to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go with Anathoth to your estate, for you deserve death. 
But I will not at this time put you to death because you carried the ark of the Lord God before David, my father, and because you shared in all my father's affliction. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. Mm -hmm. Um, So Abiathar gets banished, um, but Mm -hmm. not put to death. Again, this really feels like Game of Thrones, Godfather kind of stuff here. It's like Solomon is just going Mm -hmm. down the list and he's just dealing with all of these characters who were a problem for him. I mean, he has to know that Abiathar was with Adonijah, obviously, at the Serpent Stone. Um, So he's just clearing the deck here. He's just getting rid of all these people. Mm Mm-hmm. And he, you know what? He's being merciful where he can be, but he's giving very short leashes to anyone. <laughs> you know, it's like Adonijah, you know, prove yourself to be worthy. And then Adonijah makes the stupid request and he's done. Yes. You know, you're going to see the same thing with Shimei. He's gives, he gives very short leashes and he says, you know what? Like, you're a cancer to this kingdom and I cannot tolerate any cancer metastasizing. So I'm going to give you a very short leash, and within these boundaries, you can operate and you'll live, but you step outside of it and start showing your old true colors again, and you're done. And <laughs> yeah. you know, he holds true to that. You know, When they do, they're done. So uh, verse 28, Sam tells us, when the news came to Joab, for Joab had supported Adonijah, although he had not supported Absalom, Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and caught hold of the horns of the altar. And when it was told King Solomon, Joab has fled to the tent of the Lord, and behold, he is beside the altar. Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, go, strike him down. So Benaiah came to the tent of the Lord and said to him, the king commands, come out. But he, Joab, said, no, I will die here. (laughs) Prophetic. Then Benaiah brought the king word again, saying, thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. The king replied to him, do as he said. (laughs) He said he's going to die here. Strike him down and bury him and thus take away from me and from my father's house the guilt for the blood that Joab shed without cause. The Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked and killed with the sword two men more righteous and better than himself, Abner the son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa the son of Jether, commander of the army of Judah. So shall their blood come back on the head of Joab and on the head of his descendants forever. But for David and for his descendants and for his house and for his throne, there shall be peace from the Lord forevermore. So then Benaiah went back and did as as Solomon said. He struck him down. Um, you and I talked about this, and I asked, you know, why did Joab go and, and grab hold of the horns? That's what Adonijah mm-hmm. did. Um, and you mentioned last week that that was a sign that they were looking for, for, for mercy, basically, or going to the place of mercy, going to the altar where we find mercy, where we make sacrifices. Mm-hmm. And basically, Joab was pleading for his life. Yeah. It's, it's, it's saying, I need a sacrifice. I've done something wrong, and I need something to atone for me so that I can find mercy. But it didn't work. Yeah, for this in this case, it was very clearly that it was just a ruse. So you know, it wasn't authentic repentance. It wasn't sincere. It was, you know, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to survive. I'm gonna I'm gonna exploit grace and mercy so that I can position myself to make a comeback. And he knows it. Yeah, Solomon absolutely sees right through it. And the other thing too is that in that section in the law where it talked about, you know, if somebody has caused the death of someone else they can go to the altar basically and and plead for mercy and make a sacrifice or there was some prescribed action but it specifically meant by an accident or like in a time of war or whatever in a a fight Mm -hmm. what joab had done being cold-blooded specifically was excluded so so he actually, again, go, he was going to the altar to try to play the angle here of, hey, you know, I'm at the altar, you know, this, 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 this is all safe, you know, I made it to home base here, um, and Solomon knows the law better than Joab, it's like, nope, no protection for you there because you committed murder in cold blood. Uh, so he, he, didn't, he didn't get uh, what he thought he was going to get from that. Yeah. And, you know, one of the other things that a lot of people would try – probably thought was, hey, if I go into this sacred place by the altar, they're not going to want to defile it by killing in there or by having dead bodies in there. And that does not prevent Solomon from bringing justice to him at the altar either. Yeah. So then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, becomes leader of the army in place of Joab and Zadok, the priest, in place, in place of uh, Abiathar. Uh, And then finally, we have to deal with Shammai. And this is probably my favorite 
story from here, just because as we've kind of talked about where we see ourselves maybe in this story, I feel a little bit like Shammai. Let me explain why. Verse 36, the king sent and summoned Shammai and said to him, build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there and do not go out from there to any place, whatever. So there's the command. Don't leave Jerusalem. Don't don't leave your house. Don't leave the, the city. For on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron, know for certain that you shall die. Your blood shall be on your own head. And that's the angle that Shammai is going to play here. And Shammai said to the king, what you say is good. As my Lord, the king has said, so will your servant do. So Shammai lived in Jerusalem many days, which if we stopped right there, it would be a happy story. Mm-hmm. But verse 39, <laughs> but it happened at the end of three years that two of Shammai's servants ran away to Achish, the son of Micah, king of Gath. Now, Gath is in Philistine, right? That's where mm-hmm. Goliath Philistia. was from. It's over in the, uh, close to the Mediterranean. Okay. So that would have been south and west of Correct. Jerusalem. Okay. And when it was told to Shammai, behold, your servants are in Gath, Shammai arose and saddled a donkey and went to Gath to Achish to seek his servants. Shammai went and brought his servants from Gath, brought them back to Jerusalem. And when Solomon was told that Shammai had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and returned, the king sent and summoned Shammai and said to him, did I not make you swear by the Lord and solemnly warn you saying, no, for certain that on the day you go out and go to any place, whatever you shall die. And you said to me, what you say is good. I will obey. And then, you know, I mean, basically Shammai, you know, the King Solomon reminds him of the harm that he did to David by taunting him and so forth. And Shammai was struck down. And I, and as I thought about that, my understanding of it, and, and you tell me what you think, but I felt like Shammai was trying to play an angle here. Shammai's mm-hmm. like, he told me not to cross the brook Kidron. Well, Kidron, the Valley of Kidron, is east of Jerusalem. So Shammai was thinking, I'm going to the west. <laughs> I'm not crossing the brook of Kidron. And the reason I feel that way is that he came back to Jerusalem. I mean, if he didn't think he had an angle, some way that Solomon wasn't going to take his head off, mm-hmm. why did he come back to Jerusalem? Yeah, and... I think that might be right. Uh, it's interesting. Why would Sol- I'm curious why Solomon would specify the Kidron rather than just say, don't leave Jerusalem. Um, but you, you also understand Solomon's suspicions. So when, when David was deposed, this is one of the guys from, by his son Absalom. This is one of the guys cheering. You know, he's throwing rocks at David and he's, he's a, you know, loving the, the Saul regime, which is no more. He wants the kingdom to go back to Benjamin. And so, He's got this legacy, and now, which makes sense why Solomon would be suspicious and say, you're not allowed to leave Jerusalem. I don't want you out scheming things you know, that are going to come back to haunt me. And so when he leaves, he not only leaves Jerusalem, but he goes to the greatest military threat against the Israelites at that time, which is the Philistines. And so here you have you know, a sworn enemy of David who had cursed at David and everything else going – to the enemies of David and Israel, the Philistines. And if you're Solomon, you don't know if he's over there, you know, negotiating some kind of a scheme to overthrow Solomon or to take Israel down. And so, like, back in this era, which, you know, politically super unstable in this region, you have to be safe. And that would have been my suspicion. Like, why, why, hold on, tell me why you're going to the Philistine cities again? <laughs> you know, yeah. You wouldn't have been able to trust him. Well, and you also wonder, you know, and maybe, and and maybe what I saw is Shimei trying to play an uh, an ang- an angle here. Maybe what he was really doing, Solomon was setting a trap for him hmm. by saying, yeah, if you if you if you leave for any reason, like if you go east, I'm going to cut your head <laughs> off. And Shimei's thinking, oh, maybe I can go west, you know, that kind of thing. I, maybe Solomon was laying a trap for him just to kind of see where, what, whether Shimei's loyalties were still, you know, with the enemies of, of his house of David and of Solomon, his son. Maybe that was something that he was trying to find out. I don't yeah. know. When you he know? repeats it back to him, he says, on the day you go out and go to any place, whatever, you know, and so Solomon changes it from east, you know, through the Kidron to any place, whatever. It's like, well, maybe he was laying a trap. Well, he did start with that. He said, if you go out any place, whatever, the day you cross the Brook Kidron. So he did. He started with, don't go anywhere. And then he told him, because when you cross the Brook Kidron, that's when your head comes off. <laughs> and uh, and Shammai went the other way. Would He would have headed out the, the west of Jerusalem to get over to Gath. Um, and it just, you know, the reason that I identify so much with Shammai, and this is just you know this is me reading into his character a little bit there but 
that's a particular behavior that, first of all, let me just say I find annoying about myself. <laughs> I really do. But it's like, I know, you know, it's like, you know what God wants you to do. You understand it. And yet you're just trying to, you know, it's like, I just don't want to do it. I'm just like, and you're looking for the angle. Well, Lord, didn't you say not on Wednesdays at two o'clock uh, <laughs> when the uh, sun is, you know, Lord, it looks a little cloudy out there. It's like, we're always trying to find a reason why we don't have to obey. Um, yeah. And so I saw a lot of myself in Shemai. I am a guy who plays the angles. And the one great thing that I would flaw that I would say to myself, character flaw, is that I've lacked self-discipline in my life. Uh, you know, just as an overarching thing, if you if you ask me, hey, Mark, what's, what's the biggest thing wrong with you? I would say that I've lacked self-discipline. I've, I've not been able to, to take care of either my health or my responsibilities or whatever, as I know that I should. I just don't have the self-discipline sometimes. And part of that is I'm always a guy who's playing the angles. I'm always looking for the reason. I'm looking for the out. I've got my rationalizations, my justifications. That's been beaten out of me a little bit over time. I've gotten a lot better with respect to that. But I've looked at the way that that has sort of harmed my relationship with the Lord. And, you know, I'm just looking for an angle. God, don't you want this for me? Of course you do. Well, that's why I'm doing that. Um, and so I think a lot of us do that. I think a lot of us identify with that looking for the angle. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, it never works out. <laughs> you know, like whenever you're looking for the angle, when it's like, it help me figure out a way to just to not have to suffer consequences. That's never a life of fulfillment. And, it, you know, it kind of brings me to. We talked about this last week, but you know the curse of the sword and this whole story looms large. Um, and so, just to kind of recap, when David falls and he has the affair with Bathsheba and he has Uriah killed, when Nathan comes to confront him, he confronts him for, you know, he confronts him for the adultery, he confronts him for the murder. But it seems like one of the heavier uh, sins that David committed was you've given an occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme his name. Like, you're supposed to be the one who represents me. Now, everybody who looks at our faith is going to say, oh, yeah, like King David, sure. Yeah, you, you guys are so great. And that's one of the things. When, when people fall, when you have a prominent name in Christianity or a pastor who falls, it gives people a, an excuse to say, oh, yeah, those people. You know, and it, it does. It blasphemes the name of God and to some extent. And so when Nathan comes, he says the consequence for this is going to be that the sword does not depart from your house. And that is going to be – that's big in chapter one, big in chapter two, maybe really big in chapter two. It's going to be big next week. And, and so at the end of chapter one, you have the sword that makes an appearance. And it's Adonijah who is pleading for mercy, and, and he's pleading for mercy at the end and in verse – uh, let's see, verse 51, and then it was told Solomon, behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, for behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Then if you fast forward into the next chapter, when Shammai is making his appeal, or when David is talking about Shammai, he says, I once promised him, I will not put you to death with the sword. And so all of these people have the opportunity for mercy, right? Just like we were talking about, Adonijah has the opportunity for mercy. If only he'll prove himself a worthy man. Shammai will have an opportunity for mercy. If only he doesn't leave Jerusalem. And these other characters are, are given opportunities for mercy. If only they'll obey this. And one of the things that you learn, and this is stunning, is self-preservation is not enough. Mm. Self-preservation is not enough. When Absalom is like, oh, I get to live if I do dot, 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 it's not enough. He, he, he bungles it. He's, he's going to be killed. Shammai, same thing. All I have to do is stay in Jerusalem, and he bungles it, and he can't be killed. And so when you go into chapter 3, and I'm going to steal a little bit of chapter 3's thunder real quick, when, what Solomon is learning here as he's watching all of these compatriots of David falling, you know, and all the dysfunction of David's kingdom, what he's seeing is self-preservation is a lousy motivation to bring justice. People, people won't – they won't do it. They don't – and so when you get to chapter 3, and I'm assuming, you know, people will probably know this story where the two prostitutes come and both of them are claiming the life of this baby, what does Solomon say? Bring me the sword 
right? Mm-hmm. And what he's going to do is cut the baby in half, or what he's claiming he's going to do is to cut the baby in half. And then the real mom jumps forward and says, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. And one of the things that I think you put these two chapters together, self-preservation, the threat of the sword for self-preservation is not enough. Mm. But it's when you love something outside of yourself more than yourself, that's when the sword reveals authenticity. It brings out the real love of a person. Mm -hmm. And so these women, these prostitutes, the right rightful mother will jump forward and say, I give up, you know, I'll I'll lay down my rights, I'll lay down my life, just don't take my son at the threat of the sword. And there's something something to that. You the sword when Jesus says, you know, I come to bring a sword, which is the word of God, it pierces to the heart, it reveals something. Self-preservation is not enough to change you. You can't look at your faith and say, you know what, like, oh, I'm just going to do it and I'm going to get better. And, you know, God tells me that if I do X, Y, and Z, then I'm going to be better. It'll never be enough. You'll never get better. You'll always be falling short. The way to true transformation is to place so much love into as an object outside of yourself into the Lord that transforms you. That kind of loyalty, that kind of love for something greater than you transforms you. But self-preservation never will. Mm. That's good. That's good. If there's a message <laughs> in First uh, Kings chapter uh, two, which is you know it's a admittedly is it's a tough chapter to to uh, dig through. Um, it's that it is that. Is there anything else that we want to talk about? You know, one of the things that I that I love about this passage is you know we look at characters like Joab or we look at Shammai, and there are people who betrayed the king. You know, the king was entitled to their allegiance and they they did things that were self-serving or they they mocked the king or they rooted for his downfall and in reality like if the lord is the king of the universe then there's no way that we <laughs> can't say that we've been rebellious toward him well, like joab or shammai we're self-serving we 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 don't do what he asks we're we're constantly in some sense of rebellion from what he requires of us and the reality is is that sword we deserve it. Mm. Like, we have stood in the way of his kingdom. We are a cancer to it in some sense with our sin and selfishness and all the ways that we bring corruption to our lives and families like we've talked about. And so the sword is there. And and if justice were the heart of the Lord and justice alone, that sword would fall upon us and devour us like it devoured Joab or Shammai. But that promise, the sword will not depart from your house, is true all the way to the days of Jesus, another son of David who's going to inherit the eternal throne, except he doesn't take the sword out and slay his enemies. He allows the sword to fall on him for the sake of his enemies. And so for those people who come to Christ and they receive him as king, it's like rebels. We've, we've rebelled against the kingdom of God for so long, and now the punishment is due, and we're left with a decision. Who will the sword fall upon? And this is the point of the gospel. Jesus has come into this world. He tells his followers, like Peter in the garden, when they're coming to arrest him, put away the sword. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword, and he goes to the cross, and in a sense, the cosmic justice of God for all the rebellion of mankind against his kingdom falls upon Christ. He is the one who's executed in the place of rebels, and he says, rebels, will you listen to me? If you place your trust in me, the penalty is extinguished. Mm. I have suffered the curse of the sword, but for those who do not place their trust in Christ. That sword is still hanging. Right now is the window of mercy where you can come to Christ and you can receive that gift of salvation. But if you choose to go it alone, if you choose to say, you know what, my kingdom is more important than God's kingdom, I'm still going my way, that sword is still hanging over you and that justice will fall upon you. So I would encourage everybody, within the sound of my voice, Do you see how good your king is? Mm. He doesn't take out the sword to go after his enemies to wipe them out. He allows his enemies to slay him 
so that he can extend mercy, so that he can take the penalty on your behalf, so that you can be not only citizens of the kingdom, but so that you can reign with him, so that you can be restored, so that you can be made sons and daughters, so that the broken house of David is no longer broken. It is a house reconciled, because the king, the true eternal king, has taken the sword upon himself, Mm. and he's extinguished its power forever. But you have to give your life to him. Otherwise, that sword hangs over you still. Amen. Well, we'll let that stand as our last word on 1 Kings chapter 2. We hope that you've enjoyed your time with us, folks, that it's been profitable for you. Uh, If you'd like to correspond with Sam or myself, if you have something that uh, a question perhaps that's come up as you've listened to this week's podcast or there's a topic that you'd like us to to address, uh, feel free to send us an email. The email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O, vistachurch.com. That's also where you can find all of the back episodes of Out of Water at riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. Or you can find us in the uh, Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, on Spotify, or in our free Rio Vista Church smartphone app, which is available at an app store near you. Sam and I will be back next week with the uh, third chapter of the book of First Kings, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.